What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Getting the Cashflow Game with K&K. So today, we've got John Cashman on um, from Cashman Capital Group. So John is, you know, it's what's great about this. I love interviewing um, people like John. A lot of these guys were in the, uh, you know, in the business world, um, the nine to five, collecting a paycheck, and they just get over it. So John really focuses on helping people at his company that are working professionals, invest in apartments. Um, he has a podcast and, you know, does syndication. And basically like all of us is like, he's probably doing more education, stuff like that. But, you know, whether you want to buy your first place, he's a guy that can help you out or you want to deploy capital to him or maybe just learn from a guy like him. Um, great to listen to just somebody that just went from, you know, the nine to five world came over to the dark side or the good side. Um, and now is doing, uh, syndication full time, has the podcast and all that and really helping a lot of people. And so, you know, his philosophy is you could do it yourself or you can give money to him and let somebody grow up for you. So, you know, I think he mentioned like the Robert Kiyosaki, Robert Kiyosaki's like maybe buy your first duplex do it yourself, learn it, manage it, figure it out. You know, that's how you learn is going through that uh, exercise that we all know. Or the other one is like, you know, grant model as is you just deploy capital, 100 grand, 200 grand, 10 grand, whatever you can do. Grant allows that in his fund and you go work and you do what you're good at and let somebody else do what they're good at and take your money. And um, obviously they go and build wealth for you. So we jump into, you know, background, investing, talking about all that fun stuff. Um, but always great perspectives, always great to learn from all these investors. Just everybody has such a different take on the market, what's going on, where they are in their backyard, how they got started, what works for them, what works for their community. And, you know, all, a lot of these guys have really built a community where um, people are just that's what they're looking for is a lot of people, you know, if you're in real estate and you're a realtor or you're a syndicator or whatever you do, you know, you have your clients, you have your community and you're helping build your community and adding value to it. And John is a guy that has done that through helping people make money, helping people learn how to make money and through podcasts and education, all that stuff. So without further ado, let's jump into the podcast with John. John, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for coming on the getting the cash flow game with K and K. Absolutely. Listen, I'm excited to be here today. And uh, for those who can see, love that beautiful backdrop you got in that office. Nice, nice. Um, so my wife is not here today, so you only get 1K. But um, I wanted to jump in and say, uh, well, number one, congrats, because um, I was reading, doing some research. You've, you've done about, what, 350 episodes podcast? Yeah. Wow. What, what's, what period of time have you done that over on? Four years. So we started with a weekly show and about two years ago, we went to twice a week and uh, I'm being pushed now to increase even more than that. So we'll see uh, how quickly it takes us to get another 350 episodes under our belt. Yeah, we're about, I'd say, you know, 150 ish or whatever. So I, I, I applaud you because it is a commitment. Um, it is a lot of work, but, um, obviously if you've done 350 and you're being asked to do more, you're, you're really good at what you're doing and you're providing a lot of information for people. So kudos to you. Um, I wanted to jump in. If you can kind of give us a little bit, uh, background, the audience about, you know, where you're from, what you got going on and honestly, just kind of how you landed here today. 
Yeah, absolutely. First and foremost, I am a Midwest kid. So I live in Cincinnati today, but I'm born and raised in Cleveland. I lived in Dayton, Ohio. I've lived in Detroit. I lived in Chicago. So I've bounced around the Midwest a little bit. Uh, My background's in corporate America. I worked in marketing and advertising for 15 years. I was at General Motors for a period of time. I worked at advertising agencies overseeing campaigns for big brands like Nike, Coors Light, Mountain Dew, and, and other brands like that. And uh, really, for me, what I realized is it was really important to create passive income. Uh, we talk a lot about cash flow and passive income, and there were two things driving that. One, I wanted to have some flexibility in how I spent my day. But then two, because of the industry I was in, I never really felt uh, safe, I guess you would say. Um, you know, when I was at General Motors, I was actually there when we went through bankruptcy. So I watched some of my peers lose their job and remember what it was like being in the industry at that time. It's very tough. And, you know, those folks who didn't really have a plan B, the anxiety just wore on them. So I, I always made a mental note of that. That was early in my career. Uh, but I made a note of that. And I wanted to get into real estate specifically to create passive income. Uh, you fast forward with me being in the advertising space. And a lot of those jobs are tied to the account. If you lose the account, a lot of times there's layoffs that take place. So I I saw a lot of people get let go over time. And the process was always the same. They get let go, they dust up the resume, get on LinkedIn, reach out to some connections and try to find the next job. And I just felt like that wasn't the right approach for us. So we actually focus more on building our passive income through real estate investing. And now we help other people to join us with real estate deals. That's awesome. Um, it's cool. Cause a lot of, I mean, a lot of people like you probably talked to, but we talked to, um, Crystal and I are not from the corporate world. Um, we were very young entrepreneurs. So I love it when I see people, you know, come from the corporate world and come over to the dark side, our side, whatever, um, and take the leave of faith. When, when, um, when was the last time you were kind of in the corporate world? Like how, what year was that? Uh, it was a few years back. So I would say like 2018, 2018 oh, wow. okay. maybe early yeah like late 2018 because i was balancing i mean the thing that's great for us was you know with real estate you could build that on the side you know it's it's not one of those things that requires your full-time attention so you can slow build so i was slow building for a couple of years before i decided to go full-time in real estate yeah i was gonna ask you about that so uh how how do you you know you're in the corporate world obviously i think a lot of people they hit a certain age i think it's the it's some triggers right it's like it's a lot of times it's the kids or it's like, do I really just want to wake up? My kids are 18 and I just wasn't around. Or sometimes it's like, I'm tired of the corporate thing. Or sometimes it's like, I'm not going to be able to build wealth. And what am I going to do for retirement? But how did you ultimately pick real estate? Was it a book? Was it a mentor? I'm just curious for that. Real estate was the one thing that um, felt really uh, attainable. You know, uh, when I think about creating passive income, um, there are a lot of ways you could do that, right? You could write a book, you could become a musician, right? And create songs, you could write a movie. So there's a lot of ways to get residual income or passive income. I mean, true passive income, meaning that you do the work one time and that's it, checks just show up once a month. And um, real estate just seemed the easiest of them. You know, I'm not really a great singer. I'm an okay writer, but probably not gonna have a number one Grammy hit. Um, you know, wasn't really that technical as I didn't think I could create the next big app. So, I mean, as I just broke it down to like, Hey, what can you do to create real passive income? Uh, real estate was the thing that felt most attainable, not to mention, you know, there's that quote that 
90% of the, the millionaires in the US, you know, hold a portion of their holdings in real estate. So it just felt like the right thing to do. Um, seemed pretty, pretty uh, attainable. So real estate's where I focus. There was a book that really helped me understand it. And many of your audience will be pretty familiar with this, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It was a book that I read prior to uh, getting into corporate America. And when I read that book, it made sense. It just made sense. And I recall distinctly when I was going through a round of layoffs at GM, um, I remembered that book. And I remember what he talked about as far as working for experiences, not necessarily for a title or for a salary. And I was reminded that a lot of my peers at that time, they were working for the next promotion. And their, their goal at that point was just to find another job. And it kind of made me pivot back into that mode of more entrepreneurship, where yes, I was working a W-2 job, but my end game was really to create this passive income for myself and for other people. Yeah, I mean, it must be interesting because you're in the corporate world for a while, and then obviously the GM thing was crazy. I mean, you went through, so you're there during the, basically the financial crisis, it sounds like, which is probably a crazy time. Um, but what's interesting is now you're outside the corporate world, and you can look back in. Um, What's that view like today? Like how, when you look back, are you kind of like glad I did it or like, man, I should have got out earlier. How, how does it, how does that make you feel like right now? You know? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think your timing is your timing. So, you know, if you get out earlier, maybe you have regrets that you missed on opportunities or something like that. So I have no regrets from that standpoint. And honestly, I enjoyed what I was doing. You know, I think some people, they hate their job. They're miserable. Those are the people who need to quickly find an exit, find something else to do. I love what I was doing, man. I was doing TV campaigns. I was going on, you know, doing events and traveling the country, doing uh, concerts and working with celebrities. So I was doing fun, cool work and getting paid for it, right? Um, so I enjoyed the work. The problem was I was also very aware. I was acutely aware that the, the things that I got, the perks that I got, they were tied to the title on that business card. You know, it wasn't John Kasman who was, you know, traveling and staying at these, you know, first class hotels and, you know, going to the Super Bowl and doing all these fun things. It was the, the brand manager for, you know, for GM or the brand, you know, the advertising account director for the agency that I was working for. And whoever held that title got those perks. And when I was an intern, I had someone who told me something It just always stuck with me. And he said, listen you always want to hustle for the name on the business card, your name, not for the name of the company or the title that you hold. Make sure you put the value in the name. That's what you're working towards. You want to get these things because of you, not because you happen to be sitting in this chair at the moment. And a lot of people in corporate America, they, they misconstrue that fact. They associate themselves with the title. So they put all of their value in being the director of whatever business operations, or I'm a, yeah. an attorney or whatever. And what happens is, if you lose that job, you retire, you get let go, you switch positions, whatever. Now you've got an identity crisis, because you've equated yourself and your value to that position for so long, you don't even know who you are. So it's really important for me, it was always important to separate that and to not get confused when I'm having meetings and all this stuff. They're doing that because they want to sit down with the person who has this big budget or this marketing budget, um, that's what's happening there. You know, at some point, yes, some people do want to sit down with John, but most of these people are sitting down with the brand manager of this account, not necessarily with John and just not confusing it too and staying humble in that situation. Yeah. You know, and I think, um, 
one of the things that's interesting I was reading about you is, and then, you know, you did marketing and you mentioned, you know, the name, you know, really your brand is your name, right? And I think, I mean, I look at you now, you got the podcast, you're doing the coaching investing, we're going to dive in all that, but your marketing background of what you've done has just had to help you get to where you're at now, because I look at your stuff, it's like on point, you know what you're doing and you're now building your brand. You're not building GM's brand, anybody else's brand. So can you kind of just like talk about how, how did you transition from, you know, doing marketing for a company to go, well, now I'm going to market myself. How does that work? And like, how did you bring that over into like your world, not their world, you know? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think some folks may think it was intuitive and natural to make that transition. And in fact, it was very difficult because for me, it's easy to be on the other side of the camera. It was easy to do the strategy and run the marketing campaigns for a product or a service or even an influencer, right? Some celebrity. Uh, but to be the brand and put myself out there, it took a little bit more work because, I mean, one, I had to um, come to grips with things not being perfect. I had to recognize that, hey, you know what? You're not going to sound perfect all the time. You're not always going to look your best. You may not necessarily put forth the representation of yourself that you want to put every single time. Um, but you have to be okay with that. And for me, I think the big clicking moment was recognizing that people were only going to do business with you if they felt they knew who you were, they liked who you were, and they trusted who you are. And they can only do that if they get to know you. And the only way to get to know you is for them to, to connect, right? They've got to see you somewhere. They have to hear your name somewhere. They've got to engage with you somehow. And social media is great for that. Podcasts are great for that. But at the end of the day, you've got to find some way to connect with people. And that helped me understand the, the real value of a personal brand. If you really think about it and strip it all back, we all have a personal brand, even in corporate America. Think about it. I worked my butt off in corporate America. And part of the personal brand I built was how I worked on projects, how I interacted with teams. When they went up in the, the rankings, when you got to the CMO of a company, they had a sense of who John Kasman was, even if they never talked to me. Because they said, hey, the new kid working on that project, how, how's he doing? And someone's going to tell him, yeah, the kid's great. He's doing well. You know, he's a keeper. So that's your personal brand. It may not have anything to do with podcasts and social media posts or, you know, logos or anything like that, but it's still building a personal brand. And you're starting to see that even in corporate America, where the folks who are really successful are those folks who can build a personal brand because that's transferable. If you want to put together a resume, that's ultimately what a resume is, right? It's taking your personal brand, putting on a piece of paper and reaching out. Well, now if you've got a website and you can showcase the work that you've done or the clients that you've helped, man, that personal brand works a lot harder than the person who doesn't have that. So it, it all kind of works together. And I think for me, when I recognize that ultimately people need to find a way to get to know you and that's the way they're going to do business, it made it easier to say, uh, to commit to doing things like the podcast and, you know, doing the meetups and all of those things. Because at the end of the day, I'm not trying to sell anything other than giving people a chance to get to know who I am. Yeah, it's, um, that's awesome. I, um, when we kind of decided to do, we never really did any marketing, right? In our business, we were referral. And so we used to own a manage, property manager company along with the finance we were doing. We sold it. And I'm like, okay, what are we going to do with our free time? And I looked at my wife and said, we're going to build our branch. Because what does that mean? I go, I don't even know. But we're going to figure it out. And I, um, 
Next thing I know, I literally wasn't even into social media. I, next thing I know, I'm in Gary V's office at a 4D dive, and he comes in the room and sits down. And he goes, so what are you doing here? And I was like, honestly, I don't really know. He goes, well, what do you mean? I said, I'm, here's, here's my background of real estate. And he goes, okay, so you're going to go back home, and you're going to give it all away for free. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, you know, you know, give it a, you know, go home and give it effing away for free. And that's basically what he told me. And I was like, okay, I don't even really know what he means, but I'm going to figure it out. And I, you know, I'm two, you know, two and a half years into this, just like you. And I realized it was just sharing my knowledge and experience and just giving everything we've learned in real estate away for free and educating people. And in return, you don't realize it comes back a hundredfold, tenfold, whatever it is. And that was just our brand is our brand was now people know it's like, oh, okay, okay, this and that. But so what was it when you decided to start the podcast or this or that? Was there somebody that was there somebody you watched or how did you know you're going to do a podcast in this? Is there, would you, did you study somebody? Did you know, like, I'm just curious how you jumped into this. Yeah. For me, I got a mentor. You know, one of the biggest things was uh, I had built my own real estate portfolio up to that point. And it was about five years in. So my wife and I, we had done everything. We saved our own money, bought real estate, saved our money, bought real estate. And what happened was, as you could expect, we started running out of money and <laughs> yeah. we didn't save enough money to, to keep up with kind of the deals. Right. Uh, Cause we're buying, we're buying in Chicago, North side of Chicago, where, you know, an eight unit building was costing us 600 some thousand dollars. So working full time, having our two kids, uh, we just, you know, couldn't keep up with that kind of pace. And we realized we needed to start partnering with other people. So I ended up hiring a coach who helped me understand more about the process. And for me, it wasn't that I needed a, a real estate coach per se, but I really wanted someone in my corner that I could just talk to about questions or ideas or things that I was thinking because I wasn't comfortable taking other people's money for investment um, without having that kind of resource in my pocket. So that was really what I was hoping to get was just someone in my corner to help, you know, overlook my deals, uh, you know, the way we're packaging offerings, things like that. And that person had a podcast and it's actually how I came across them. And what he started telling me was that, listen, you need a thought leadership platform if you really want to scale and grow. And for us, we raise millions of dollars for our deals from everyday people who are listening, you know, people listen to the show, people read blogs. So we raise from everyday people. And in order to get in touch with those kind of individuals, you have to have a way to reach them. You know, yes, it's great to reach out to people in your network, uh, folks you've worked with in the past, people you went to school with, friends and family. That's great. But two things happen. One, they run out of money, right? You can only yeah. go to the same friends and family so many times. But then two, you're very limited in how many people you can reach and the timing being exactly right. And a lot of these people aren't interested in what you're talking about. I mean, as much as it makes sense to you and I, you know, your, your auntie may not be interested in investing in real estate right now. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the reality of it, right? So you, you don't want to be the guy doing a hard sales pitch, you know, and basically doing those like uh, multi-level marketing where you invite everybody over, come in a basement, let me tell you how great this is. Like no one wants that, right? So there are people who are looking for what you have to offer. You've got to find a way to get in front of those individuals, right? And, and that's really what the podcast was all about for me was, how do I take some of the knowledge I have, get in front of the right people? But then also, I really wanted to learn from the show because I knew what I knew, but I believe in lifelong learning. And what I was really trying to figure out at the time was the best way to identify markets to invest in. 
So when I launched the show, it was called Target Market Insights. And we were trying to find the insights to discover the best markets and sub-markets for real estate investing. And the reason I wanted to do that was I was living in Chicago. I was no longer able to find the deals that I was you know, finding in Chicago. So I needed to expand to other markets. And I had no clue how to figure out which markets were good. I, I could figure out the cities for the most part. But once you get to the cities, like, well, what part of that city? And why this city versus that one? And why this neighborhood versus that neighborhood? And it can be overwhelming if you're looking at a lot of different markets. And if you don't live in a market, you know, to buy a, you know, a six-figure, seven-figure property and realize you actually bought in the wrong school district or there's some big infrastructure plan that's coming in is going to wipe out your product like that thing scared me so it's like how are other people doing this and i launched that show to bring on guests and ask them that question and it was great and i got my answer after about 20 episodes and i felt great about you know my knowledge now as far as what i needed to look for to find the best places to invest um and then it was became a matter of okay well how, where do we go from here because you can't keep asking the same question, otherwise this show is going to get old very quickly. So then we started to expand it to say, let's include more marketing research, let's get into marketing more holistically, and really focus it on kind of the multifamily insights people need to be successful. That's awesome. Yeah, I think the podcast is really cool. You get the, like just us, we're talking, we're meeting, you learn something. It's, it's such, it's awesome, you know, and if people ask, how is it? I go, every time I do a show, I'm learning, there's something I'm learning, Right. And um, it's awesome. So good for you. So I wanted to jump in um, because I'm guessing that a lot of your audience, maybe a lot of people that are listening to you, maybe I'm wrong, are people that might be stuck at corporate America or they're trying to get out or they're trying to learn the real estate game. Um, kind of who is the avatar that, you know, you're probably is investing with you your helping coach or they're listening to your podcast you know i'm just curious like who is that person yeah it's a great question man you throw out the avatar you got all the marketed terms down here today yeah so i mean there's there's two types of people we help right so we help active investors who basically want to do what we do who say hey you know what i've got some experience but I've never raised money or I've only raised a little bit of money and I want to scale this business. So that's one person who is our avatar that listens to our show that wants to learn from us. And those are the folks that typically we work with from a coaching standpoint, people who have some experience, but ready to scale and take it to the next level, working with other investors. And then we do have a, kind of a second uh, avatar, which is more of our, our partners or our investors. And those are individuals who may or may not like their job, but they typically have a W-2 job that pays them well. And what they're trying to do is really diversify their income, maybe get some passive income so that they can free up some of their time, but not necessarily immediately. And they're not necessarily looking to quit their jobs. Some of them may be, some of them are looking to get a little bit of experience, but for some of those investors, it's a matter of, you know what, I've got all of my money tied into the stock market right now. And I watch it go up, I watch it go down, I watch it go up. And I feel like I should pull some of this out and diversify. And they want to learn about real estate. They've heard real estate's a great alternative asset. They know that real estate has some amazing competitive advantages when you think about, you know, uh, deferring taxes and tax savings, uh, when you get into just being an inflation fighter with something that we're dealing with right now, um, not to mention the fact that it's a tangible asset. You can see it. If we've invested in an apartment building, you can go over to it. You can see where it's out on the map. You can pull it up on Google Maps. It's a real tangible thing, right? So people like that aspect of diversifying their portfolio there. So whether they have a W-2 job and they just 
want to take a portion of that income or their savings and invest it that way. Or they are thinking about this as a future career change, and they're trying to get their feet wet, learning a little bit more about the business, how things work. Those are the kind of things that we're looking for. So typically, that second avatar is an investor who uh, is making six figures, who has some some interest in investing. They, they have to at least believe in real estate, right? Um, if they don't believe in real estate or understand the, the value of real estate investing, that's going to be a little bit more challenging for us. Uh, but typically, these are people who are uh, either busy professionals that get real estate, but you know what? Uh, they got a busy job. They've got kids. They tried to do real estate maybe in the past, but they just really didn't like being a landlord. So a lot of the people who believe in real estate maybe want to do it a little bit more passively to kind of keep their time free, uh, but are looking for another way to get that passive income. Yeah, that's awesome. What do you, um, what do you, when you're coaching, what are you typically finding? Are people more needing help to raise the money or is it finding the deals or what do you, what's probably one of the, you know, one or two top common uh, you know, I would I always say it's like an insecurity, right? Cause you're helping them with the confidence and, um, that's, that you're seeing over and over again. Well, I mean, I tell everyone that this business really comes down to two things. It's pairing deals with money. So you're either looking for a deal, which almost all of us are always doing, or you're looking for the money. So it's always a combination of those two. And at times there's an ebb and flow where you might have, plenty of investors ready to go, but you don't have that deal lined up or you've got this deal, but guess what? You don't have the investor capital ready to go. So there's always a bit of a dance between those two. Um, but most of the people that we work with, the biggest challenge is really um, the reassurance that they're, they're doing the right things, that you know they're underwriting the deals the right way, that they're anticipating the ebbs and flows of the marketplace, that they are being conservative. Um, and then when it comes to, you know, raising capital, or as I like to say, attracting capital for deals, it's understanding how to help people. You know, th there's a really big difference in, um, you know, raising capital and attracting capital. Technically, it's the same thing. But the reason I say attracting capital is it's a mindset. If you are out there trying to raise capital, that means you feel like you're going into salesman mode, right? You're going through your list of contacts. You're going to reach out to them. You're going to tell them why this is the greatest deal since sliced bread. You got to be a part of this. Oh my goodness. It's an amazing opportunity. And people sense when they're being sold, especially people who, um, you know, have, have the means to invest. So you're not going to be successful if you try to, you know, sell people on investing. And instead, you know, we talk about attracting those investors. It's helping people understand why these investments are good opportunities, helping them understand what it does for them, whether they are trying to lower their tax liability, whether they are looking to gain passive income, whether they just want to diversify out of the stock market. You know, the fact that this is a tangible asset, when you can create it where people are asking you questions about it and they're interested in it, it's a little bit of an easier conversation for you to help them uh, with an investment opportunity. And that makes it much easier. So that's the thing that we really try to help people with most is really flipping that dynamic. So it goes from you being the salesperson trying to, you know, convince people to invest with you, which I completely disagree with. You should never try to sell people on that. Uh, but instead, try to present opportunities to people, educate them on how it works, how it could benefit them, what the risks are, um, and seeing who wants to come and take that journey with you. That's awesome. What's, um, you know, I saw on your website, you had a six C's, if you call it attracting money. 
I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and I like that you, I've never really had somebody say attracting mother than raising money. And I, I agree. I think the people that are really great at it are people are flying to give the money. Just like you said, I don't know, they exude confidence or something like that. Can you kind of go through your six C's? If you know off the top of your head, kind of walk us through that and how you came up with those. That's pretty cool. I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, I, uh, I will. The, the first three C's are, are going to be confidence. Um, and confidence is something that there's hubris and there's confidence. I'm not talking hubris. I'm not talking a guy who's just confident to be confident. I'm talking about putting in the reps. You know, if that is listening to podcasts like this, reading books, um, and I'm not necessarily talking about experience yet, but I'm talking about the work to prepare yourself. Um, think about going into the gym and working out. If you go into the gym, you work out, you practice, you've prepared yourself that's where the confidence comes from. So it's got to be the inner confidence because you've actually prepared properly for the opportunity. The second C is credibility. And credibility comes from experience. Now, that experience can be your own experience or it could be the experience of other people that you surrounded yourself with. Um, now, experience doesn't necessarily relate to doing real estate deals. If you've done corporate America, you mentioned uh, being an entrepreneur. As an entrepreneur, you've done other deals. So you may not have experience as a real estate investor, but as an entrepreneur, you've had other successes that you can draw on and say, hey, you know what? I've been able to build this company or I've been able to do this or I've been able to raise money for this. So you can use that as justification that you should be able to do the same thing for real estate deal. So that credibility is what comes up next. And then the third C is going to be connections. You have to have the right connections, both in the industry. So brokers, property managers, uh, partners, uh, investors. You know, you've got to have those connections to start building out that network. So that's the third C. Now, the next three C's are secondary to the first three. But then you get into um, communication. So what's your message? What are you saying? What are you telling people about these opportunities? You need to make sure you understand what the, what the communication actually is. The channel, how are you saying this? Do you have that, that thought leadership platform? Um, are you uh, just telling people on social media? Are you hosting events where you're sharing this? So what channels do you leverage? And then a sixth C to consistently raise and attract capital for these deals is you have to be consistent. If you show up one time and you tell people how great real estate investing is, but I never hear from you again, am I going to, you know, are you going to be able to consistently attract capital? Of course not. You've done 150 episodes of this podcast. I've done 350 episodes of my show. I've been hosting my meetup in Chicago. I don't even live in Chicago anymore. And I still host a meetup in Chicago. Okay, I've been hosting this meetup for about four years. I have a conference that I do out in Chicago um, every year. It's the Midwest Real Estate Networking Summit. So the consistency allows these things to build, right? Just like a snowball, it builds over time. And it's not a matter of, you doing something once, or you do it for three weeks, or you do it for a couple months, and you see results. When I launched my podcast, now I had a some following, but you know, it was a slow build. Like it wasn't something where you put it out there and the millions flocked to me. It took time. Yeah. And, and that credibility, it all works together because the more consistent you are, the more credible you become. And if you can do those things now, those six C's start to work together and you can attract capital more consistently over time. Yeah, I really, I really like that message. I really agree. I, I would say every marketer that I've ever talked to, and I've talked to a lot of them, the one thing is consistency. They cannot beat that into anybody's brain enough, right? Like being consistent with your message, um, how you have your message, how often you have your message. Um, 
Before we kind of dive into the real estate stuff, I was going to ask you to um, a couple things. Your meetups, are you doing that? You're doing it all the time, which I think is great. Um, are you zooming in now? Or are you actually flying into Chicago then when you have them? Or yeah, so we, uh, you know, obviously with the pandemic when that hit, we had to make some changes. So before I was going, I was driving up uh, once a month for the meetup. Um, pandemic hit, we went all virtual. We just started getting back into hosting them in person again and we've changed the format so um i'm not going to every single one at this point uh, we are doing an event next week that i will be up there for and what we're trying to figure out is what's the right cadence because uh, we like to bring in a speaker and we keep our stuff educational the event is free and we try to bring in a speaker so we can educate people we want to make sure people know what they what they're going to get out of the event so we can keep the interest level high um, but we've run into some tech issues with that because now we're in different venues. The place we used to go to is shut down. Uh, but either way, yeah, the goal for me is to try to be in person when we can. Uh, but we are interested in keeping kind of a virtual component or a recorded component because there are a lot of people who are you know, not either able or still a little hesitant of meeting up in person. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And then also, um, you also talked about, like, I believe on your website, are you also helping people with marketing and branding too? Is that what I, did I read that correctly or? I mean, that's primarily through the coaching. So as a part of our coaching program, what we look at is, you know, there's the multifamily stuff, which is really critical and making sure you understand how to underwrite a deal, what to look for, identifying markets, you know, all those things. But as we just talked about with the six C's, a big chunk of this is going to be more business or marketing related things. So how to build a brand, how to work on your messaging, how to work on your communication, how to develop a thought leadership platform, and how to be consistent so you can actually see the results. I think too often people quit before they see results when the work is being put in. And if you've done something, you've done it for four or five months, just understand some things take a longer period of time. Even finding a deal, you know, um, a lot of people will do kind of an off-market campaign to find a, a real estate property, single family house, duplex, whatever. And they'll, they'll cold call, they'll send out mailers, and then they quit after a couple of months. Well, most people will tell you it takes about six months to start seeing some real traction with those efforts. So you just got to stick to it a little bit and be consistent and make sure you understand, you know, what, what the expectation is. I'm always about making changes and, and figuring out ways to be more efficient and effective, but quitting should not be the first thing you go to. It should be, hey, let me let me change this lever. Let me try something a little bit different here. Let me tweak this messaging right here and see if I get different results. But you've got to continue to be consistent before you make a real pivot from one initiative to another. So what would you like? What, give us three, since you are a marketer and I know you know a lot, give us three top three things, building brand, marketing that you've learned, just your own brand that you would tell to somebody right now, like top three things that you focus on when, you know, if they want to build their brand, like you have. I think the first thing is you have to understand that you can build a brand. You don't have to be this magnificent speaker. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have a perfect story. Your story is your story and your story is interesting. You may not think it's interesting, but I'm telling you, your story is interesting. So Focus on the value that you can share, the lessons you can share with other people and how they can learn and start telling your story. And I had an interview with someone last night. Um, I was telling her she's uh, she's got a first bigger property under contract. She's got a smaller um, rental portfolio right now. And the thing I told her is make sure you document this because you don't have to be the expert. And I think that's the big uh, misnomer that's out there is people believe that you have to be an expert to get on a podcast like this and to share your story. 
In fact, most people are at the stage you're at beginning and you probably have more value than someone like me because you're in that space where you understand every little nuance of a question that I've forgotten. You know, you talk, when people ask about, hey, you know, you're having your first investor conversation, what do you say? I don't remember from my first investor conversation. <laughs> I, I remember being nervous. I remember preparing and practicing like we talked about multiple times. I remember anticipating the questions I was going to get. I remember writing down the answers. I just wanted to make sure I didn't freeze. So I wrote it all down in front of me. And I remember that process, but I don't remember the specific questions that I got. So if you're in that stage, document your experience. Tell people, hey, you know what? I have a goal of being a real estate investor. And I want to buy my first piece of real estate in 2022. And I'm going to document this process. People love watching that. They love watching someone set out on a goal and work hard to achieve it. The other thing that's great with that process is you set yourself up to be accountable by the audience you share this with. If you do this on your social media platform or uh, a weekly blog or newsletter or something like that, you just document your goal and your process. I mean, it doesn't have to be real estate or investing. It could be anything, weight loss journey or relationship thing, whatever. But that kind of thing is really inspiring. I think you could grow your audience quickly. I think you'd have people who want to support you and help you who will come out of the, you know, out of the woodshed. Um, I started really working out more over the last uh, year and a half. And um, I had people I didn't even know were in the, the health and wellness space. I mean, you know, just put a, a picture of myself at the gym out. And, you know, a friend of mine reached out to me and started commenting on technique. And I'm like, dude, I had no idea. I've been lifting weights all this, this time. And she's like, yeah, <laughs> keep your neck this way. And it's just, you know, people come out and they want to help you. And they talk about nutrition and all these other things. So I say that to say, go into it with the, the mindset of I want to share my journey. And if you share your journey, nobody can discredit you. I don't care what your experience is or your expertise, your expertise level. It's your journey. Nobody can knock that from you. So your journey is yours. You own it. You share it. And that's a great way to connect with other people and to grow. Yeah. And I always tell people because, um, you know, there's people that, you know, they go to the Grant Cardone thing or something. And I go, look, Grant's great. We've had him on. I respect Grant. I said, but Grant's buying $200 million deals and you're going in front of him and you're like, you want to buy your first two unit. And he's telling everybody like, go buy the 30 unit. So it's also hard to relate. And I think that's what you're saying is, is like, I think people, you're right. People that are starting their journey, that those people are teaching all of us more, you know, because they're starting it. And that's where most people are right now, right? They're listening, they're starting it, or they're a little bit along. Most people aren't the Grant Cardones, you know, with the big brand, buying massive deals that's taken him, you know, 30 years to get there. So I think people are, you know, are 30 days into it and they're like, well, I'm trying to be like this. So I, uh, I totally agree with you there. So now, yeah. I, mean, yeah. I think that to your point on a Grant Cardona, I think it's a phenomenal example because you hear from these people, right? They tell you to go bigger, right? Hey, I want to buy a duplex, go bigger, go bigger. And I completely understand why they push you to go bigger. And I agree with a lot of that. But what they don't get is the psychology of that newer investor who's trying to get started. And sometimes they just need a win. You know, it's like if you're on a weight loss journey and you want to lose 100 pounds, somebody telling you to go do P90X or whatever the new workout craze is. <laughs> Listen, dude, I'm just trying to go for a walk. Like, you understand where <laughs> yeah. I'm at? 
Like yeah. you're asking me to run a marathon and I can barely tie my shoes, right? So it's, you need someone who can help you get started and then you can start to see the bigger picture and the things that people are pushing. And a lot of times when we get into these experts, they, they can only push you with their current vision, which is go big, go as hard and big as you can, as opposed to get started and put a win on, put a win up for you, whatever a win is for you, get that on the table. And if that's a dupe, if that's just going to underwrite a property or going to talk to a broker, sometimes you just have to get that initial win so you can work towards your goal and build up that confidence that we were talking about earlier. It's kind of funny because, um, Grant Cardone was on Robert Kiyosaki's podcast today. And, um, it was actually a very interesting conversation, uh, short conversation. And Grant was talking about going big and Robert was like, I'm sorry, Grant, I don't agree with you. I think you should start small. And he was like, audience, I'm just, he was saying, Hey Grant, I just, audience, I was, Grant says go big here at, uh, you know, Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, we don't agree with that. You should go small. And he was, Grant's like, uh, okay, but it's true because Robert says, I don't think people should just partner up and buy a 200, uh, 200 unit deal. I think they should buy the two unit. And like you said, have the small win and learn that. And so he was like, I just don't agree with that, but he was like, get it. And, um, so I think that's why I always tell people like, we're lucky today. We have YouTube, we have podcast. I think the pandemic has sped things up where a lot of people that I never saw interviewed because they're too busy jet setting around. It doesn't not even real estate, just wall street guys that were like stuck at home for a year. We're like, you want to get on a zoom call? Like, what the hell is that? And I've never heard them interviewed longer than three minutes on CNBC, but now I get to hear them interviewed. And so it's like, I tell people the amount of knowledge whether you're wholesaling, you're flipping, or it's multifamily, or it's single family, there's so much information. And you should look to listen to Grant. You should listen to John. You should listen to Get in the Castle, get all of them, and take all that and go, where is it? Where do I feel comfortable starting? Or just getting wins. And like you said, from nothing to just reading a book, or if you haven't done anything, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. You know, listen to podcasts. So I, I, I really agree with you, and I think people – um, starting big is not always going to be the answer for everybody, you know, and, and track and track that progress because what's, ha what's clear is that people don't always give themselves credit for what they have done. You may not have bought a hundred unit apartment complex. You may not have even bought a duplex yet, but if you've listened to 50 hours worth of podcasts, if you've read a thousand pages worth of real estate books, if you've analyzed, you know, 50 deals, that is a lot more experienced than a person who hasn't done any of that. So that's what yeah. I mean when I talk about the confidence. You've got to put these reps in and you may not have the results to show for it just yet, but don't discount the work you have done. If you've listened to shows, if you've read books, if you've been on the blogs, if you've been doing these things to immerse yourself in the industry and the business and to prepare yourself for the opportunity, that's something for you to draw on as you know, real experience that you've done. Now you just need to go out there and find those actual deals so you can, you know, share that experience with the outward world. I agree. I think, because I think some people, they don't do any of that. They go out and buy a deal. Um, maybe they're going to flip a property. It goes horribly wrong. They get screwed. They lose money and they're like, real estate's garbage. It's terrible. You shouldn't do it. And they're like, they never studied it and they just learned the hard way, right? By losing. And I know people that, we're like, I'm never investing in real estate because I lost money. I'm like, well, how did you lose money? And then you come down to it. Like, so you basically bought something, had no guidance, and you thought this is that easy. And it's like, that's most people that are successful didn't do that. You know, they literally like 
researched or like you said, got a mentor, which is a great thing to do. Um, so, so let's dive into the fun stuff. Um, is what we love talking about is real estate. Um, so you're talking about picking markets and all that. So after the first, so you're three, 350 episodes in now, how do you pick a market? How do you know? Like, and I agree, it's not just a market. It's a market. It's a sub market. It could be this street's bad. This street's good. Like, how do you define what's good and where you're going to buy? Well, you've got to learn the rules before you can break the rules. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Learning the rules is key. And, and listen, let me let me just simplify this. Part of what you're trying to understand is one really easy thing. You want to know future demand. I want to know, will demand be higher in the future in this location or will it be lower or will it be around the same? So that's what you're trying to measure. Every statistic we look at, every conversation we have around this space, that's what we're trying to understand. And when we say demand, we're talking about rental demand. I want to know basically... Can I expect higher rents in the future or should I expect rents to be stagnant or quite frankly, even to go down? So we look at things like population. We look at population growth. We look at job growth. We look at the ease of doing business. We look at, is it landlord friendly or is it, you know, resident friendly? Um, we look at a lot of those different things to help us understand what the likelihood of the demand for multifamily is going to be. Uh, for instance, if, a, if an area is um, hard to do business in, uh, but population is up. Well, you may not see a lot of new developers come in, right? Because new developers don't want to come into a place where it's going to be tough to get their permits approved. You know, councils, the city council is going to fight them on whatever their plans are. You may not see that. So, and maybe the population is not growing enough where it warrants putting up a brand new 300 unit complex. So that may be a good indicator that, hey, you know what? You might be able to um, be able to push rents in this area. So you're looking at all of those things. And we have a bit of an approach that, we can't quite get into the full detail here, but what I'll say at a high level, what we're trying to understand is demand. You know, where do we think demand is going to go? And when we look at opportunities, we want to make sure we can, um, with a fair sense of accuracy, get a depiction of where we think the demand is going to be going forward. So we look at all of those different inputs and those different factors to help us make a decision on that trajectory. Yeah, that's awesome. I, th I think it's, consistent across the board with people it's funny we're i'm here in san diego and i always say this i think everybody that we interview or we know not everybody but majority they hate california they're like they love it but they're like investing they hate it and it's kind of funny because we tell people um crystal and i you know we've been to dallas we've been to florida and we boots on the ground checked it out looked at a lot of deals talked to a lot of brokers and when we go there we're like there's a lot of, there's a lot of competition. We're going, who's the competition? Like, well, it's in state, out of state, all this. And we're laughing in San Diego. You know, your competition is somebody you probably know because a lot of people aren't coming in here. They're scared of rent control or this or that. And so it's funny. We don't have, we know, and there's not a lot of massive deals selling here, like in Texas or Florida and the other markets. So our competition, somebody buying the building is probably a friend of yours or acquaintance of yours. I got it. So it's funny when we were talking to these people in Florida, they're like, oh, no, no, you're going to have, you know, 20 outside parties and you have this. And we're like, wow, they're like, it's crazy. And it's like, you know, um, the average deal here in San Diego could be, you know, 20, 30 units rather than somewhere else is 100, 200. Right. So um, it's funny because we feel like our competition is so much different than other markets. Um, how do you guys when? Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that I think the other component that I didn't hit on. Right. Those metrics are all fine and dandy, but. 
that home field advantage is really key too, right? Boots on the ground, the ability to execute and operate, that's super important. I mean, we can look at the data points and the biggest market right now for population growth is Phoenix. I live in Cincinnati. I have no competitive advantage to be trying to run a deal in Phoenix right now. So we don't invest in Phoenix. It's not to say anything is wrong with Phoenix. It's a great market, seeing great growth. But you have to have some pragmatic aspects of this as well. If you live in a market like San Diego, yes, if you are cherry picking top markets, maybe San Diego is not the market you would pick, but you live there. You've got a competitive advantage there. You have deals that you can see. You've got friends. And guess what? There's less competition. So there are a lot of things that come into it. So that's why I say, like, I, I wish it was an easy way to say, hey, here's how you pick your market. Yeah. You've got to take in all the inputs. And then you have to say, okay, based on all these inputs, which markets give us a good chance of being successful? And then based on those, those markets, where do we actually go to find these opportunities in the sub-markets? Where's the city investing? Where's infrastructure growing? All those kind of things. How many markets are you in right now currently? So uh, I'm in Cincinnati and we focus on a two-hour radius of Cincinnati. So okay. Indianapolis, Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, we've got a deal in Florence, Kentucky. We like Columbus. And then we also will partner with other operators in the Southeast region. So uh, think about uh, Tennessee, the Carolinas, Georgia. We do have a deal in Texas. We do have a deal in Florida. Um, we like those markets, but there's a lot of competition in those markets. So the story and how we come across those deals is always important for us too, just to make sure we're getting good value. Um, I think the, the great thing right now in this market is um, it's great because there is a nice amount of deals to be had, uh, but you've got to make sure that you have a, a conservative business plan uh, so you can find opportunities, create the value that you're looking to create and be able to take a deal down from there. And are you uh, third party management? Are you self-managing or? Third party management. Uh, my, one of my business partners does have a property management company. So on um, one of our assets, we are technically, uh, I guess, you know, vertically integrated, but even there we structured it like third party. So if worst case scenario, uh, we could always step away and, and hire a third party management company. So when we run our numbers, we want to run it with third party management, just so we always have the ability to see what a new buyer would see. If uh, we want to make a change for whatever reason, we have that flexibility. You guys mainly focusing on like the value add properties. Yeah, light to medium value add. So there's certainly distressed opportunities that are out there, um, but we like light to medium value add. We are getting more and more intrigued by uh, newer properties, and in particular, new development opportunities. Um, so we're, we're keeping our eye on that. Haven't done anything in that space yet. But for us, we really like B-class properties. So it's kind of tough when you get into newer properties because most stuff that's being built brand new is either high-end luxury or it's built to be affordable, meaning that there's um, you know some strings attached to it. You have to have a certain amount of units set aside for affordable housing, things like that, which get a little more complicated if your business plan is uh, to raise, you know, increase the returns for investors. Yeah, that's awesome. And so, are you guys when you buy stuff, are you able to put? Are you doing like Fannie debt? Are you doing bridge debt? Or because you're raising rents, or what? What kind of debt are you guys doing out there? It's on the deal. We uh, we took a deal where we actually assumed the existing uh, Freddie loan. Okay. And um, so that was one of the deals we did. The other one, we did a bridge loan. And for us, I think it comes down to the business plan. You know, we never try to sit at it and say, hey, every deal is the same. Every deal is very different. Situation is different. Business plan may be different. Um, how much work is different. If we're creating a lot of equity by doing a medium value at play and renovating units, 
we want to be able to have the ability to tap into that equity, right? We want to be able to put a supplemental loan on or refinance. Um, if we're not creating necessarily a ton of equity out of the gate, then maybe we can still be in position to do a supplemental or find another way to unlock that. So over time, uh, so it just depends on the property itself and putting on the kind of debt that best suits the business plan. And are you guys uh, doing more of the long-term hold or are you guys doing where you're going to hold it for a certain period of time or what, or is it just depend on the property? And then what's your, is, is, you know, and is you just have a single strategy you kind of do, you know? Yeah, we're typically looking at a three to seven year hold, um, but we're also playing defense. So one of the things that I tell our investors is we underwrite with five years in mind. If the market changes three years into the business plan, we want to be comfortable holding that thing for an extra three or four years if we have to. Um, for me, I want to make the, the beauty of multifamily investing uh, from my standpoint is you got a cash flowing asset and you have the ability to control the sale. So if we're doing value add, which means we're basically forcing the appreciation by renovating units or finding ways to drive the NOI, we get to decide when we exit. And that loan is a part of that business plan, that dis the, the discussion and the planning that we do. Um, so it's a very important part of it. Um, so we want to have that flexibility. I think that if you are if, if you have a loan where it expires in three years, well, now you're forced to do something in three years. So if the market changes, now you're in a position where you're forced to do that. So you just want to make sure that if you're doing that, there's enough upside where you're going to be comfortable and you can make your money or you can refinance either way, no matter what's happening with the market. So uh, about three to seven years is our typical um, hold, hold time frame. Uh, we underwrite to five and then, you know, based on the market or based on demand, we'll decide when it makes sense to sell. Nice. 350 episodes, you've asked a lot of people a lot of questions, um, and I'm sure you learn a lot. Um, when you're talking to people today, what are some of your top questions or what's on their mind? And my, my thing is, is what's on their mind is maybe the market or, you know, are they, are they feel they're feeling a little bit more, are they feeling bullish, a little more gun shy? Just curious, like what's your take just on just your guests and overall view, you know, and maybe yours too. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, the market and the economy is always on everyone's mind uh, when we talk about investing. Um, what's really interesting for me is when I get guests who come back a second time um, and, and just to see how their viewpoints have changed, um, whether it be on the market or on specific markets or their overall philosophy. And coming out of the pandemic, I will say it's really interesting uh, because there are people I've interviewed prior to that and their, their approach is done a 180. And it's interesting, and it's not just to uh, to criticize. It's actually um, the opposite of that because they've taken, they've stepped back, and they've reevaluated things, and they're they've they've got a more robust approach to take advantage of the market as it's coming out. And I think that's really interesting for me, and what has helped us evolve our approach in having these conversations and asking these questions, not just about the economy. Um, and what's happening with the economy and multifamily in general, but really the implications of how do you pivot your business plan? And if you think of it, if you do the same thing, if you're investing the same way you invested five years ago, and it's the same way you invested 10 years ago, then yes, you're going to have a hard time finding opportunities in today's market, right? If you're doing the same play for the last decade, and you see that there are a lot of investors who have been investing for a long time who are sitting on the sideline. And when you talk to them, they will say things like, hey, we're keeping our powder dry. You know, I'm waiting yeah. for the correction. And 
for them, that may be the right play. Okay. But if you are trying to build your, your, your wealth and your equity, you can't just sit around. You're not going to be able to, to take advantage of it. They're going to beat you just like someone else is beating you today. So you've got to find ways to evolve and adapt. And I think the best at anything, whether you're a doctor, a lawyer, engineer, marketer, a podcaster, you are always trying to adapt and figure out, hey, what changes do I need to make to be more effective, to be better today? And there are things that other operators are doing today that make a ton of sense that help them find deals and do deals that are not risky, where they're not paying too much. Now, somebody else may look at it and say, oh, they're, they're just paying more. And, and some may be, right? But if you don't know what goes into their business plan, their approach, everything that they're doing before they make an offer, it's hard to, to make that gauge. So I, I think I just love the fact that when you talk to people, um, I get to take out the biases and maybe the blinders that I might have. And I get to listen to them. I, like you said earlier with the Grant Cardone and a Robert Kiyosaki, two huge names in this space, right? Two completely different views. Who's to say who's right and who's wrong? You're not. So I think you, you listen, you take it in, you think about you know, what you might want to explore a little deeper and say, okay, why does this guy think this way? Let me explore that with my own research and talk to other people. And then you can start to formulate your own opinions, but it's got to be based on your goals. And for me, when I listen to everyone, part of what I have to do is take it back under my filter of what my goals are, what I'm hoping to get accomplished. And then I can decide whether or not something fits or I should consider this more versus not doing it. If, if I can give you one quick example, one big thing right now is a fund of funds. A lot of my peers, a lot of people I know are doing fund to funds. And what that means is they're creating a fund and what they'll do is they'll raise money from investors. LPGP or something, right? Yeah. They'll raise LP capital from investors and then they will find other operators and they'll invest with those operators with the LP funds. And the, the perks for an LP investor is you could potentially get into deals that maybe you wouldn't have access to if they have higher, um, higher minimums or different requirements. So you could potentially get into better deals that you wouldn't have access to. The downside is if you could get into those deals, you're, you're going to get less in returns because that, um, that fund's going to take a little bit of the proceeds. And it's something that I think is very interesting. I don't have a perspective one way or the other right now, but it's interesting. And it's something that we're learning about. We're talking to more and more people. We're talking to investors. What do you like about this? What do you don't like about this? Because the downside is they already have the money. So they they're now picking the properties that they're investing in. And we've just decided at this moment, we believe our, our investors want to identify the properties. They want to review it. They want to know the city, the story. They want to know all of that stuff before they commit to a deal. And we like giving people that option. Um, so it's stuff like that, that is constantly changing as you talk to people and seeing what's new in the marketplace. Um, you get some ideas of things that may work for you and you get to bounce it off of people in your network. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that. I um, interviewed, I, can't remember his name right now um from canada this guy and um he uh we got off the line and he was like kenny so why i don't know why you and crystal aren't like raising money i said like, oh you know it's something we've talked about it's probably the one thing we haven't done is syndicate or raise money we've probably done every other thing right and um he was like no he was like no this is crazy with all you know in this, like, you should be doing a fun to fun. Like, you need to go do it. He's pushing me. It's funny. And Monty now remembers this. He's over here. It was like, and I get it because he was like, and what he was saying is, is that there are GPs too, and they were doing fun to fun. And he goes, what I liked about it is being a GP is a lot of work. It's, you know, boots on the ground. You got to find the deal. And he was saying what they started realizing with the fun to fun is that 
if you become a guy that can be reliable for the money for this fund or that fund, they start almost having you like a, giving you a definitely a better split, right? A better pref. And so that's what they found is like, if, you know, John can call Kenny and say, Kenny's always got money. He's always good for it. We got this deal. Like we got to give him a little bit more, but we can get this thing done. I don't have to sit there and call and stress about it. This is what happens. And you're there every time. And it's funny you mentioned that he was saying with, they were starting to do more of a fund to fund too. And, um, realizing there's value in that too, and they're making money. And, uh, so it's funny you mentioned that cause I'm seeing the same thing. And, um, one of the guys in a mastermind, a part of, they actually help people develop funds, raise them and do that. And, um, they teach you how to do it. They have a mentoring class and his dad is, Oh gosh, his dad is the like SC, SEC compliance guy on a, the fund, but he's a partner and it's a $24 billion fund. <laughs> so a lot of, uh, they know what they're doing, you know, so they're doing well. Um, so what's your take? What's your, what's your take on the market? What are you think we're turning into a renter's nation? Is that kind of what you're seeing is just, what do you kind of see out there? We've been turning into a renter's nation, right? I mean, if you yeah. think about the last economic downturn back in 2008, 2009, 2010, you know, a lot of people lost their homes. And you've got, you know, over a decade ago now where you have young folks who are in that space watching it, and it impacted a lot of people. I mean, I shared my story of being a GM and realizing, hey, you know what, corporate America is not the place I want to hang my bet for the next 30 years. And you have a lot of young people who don't see a house as the asset that previous generations saw it as. They like the flexibility. They want to travel. Um, they want location independence. We live in a techno technologically advanced world where you can connect with someone on the other side of the world via WhatsApp or some other, you know, Zoom or whatever else it is. So why do you need to be in this house if you haven't decided this is where you're going to be? The other thing that drives the renters nation is people are getting married later and later in life. So yeah. if the average age to get married is 32 or 33, well, I'm not, most people don't buy that first home, uh, or at least most people don't think about buying that first home until they're buying their home with a spouse or someone they're going to live with. So if that's happening five years later in life than it was, you know, 15 years ago or 20 years ago, um, that's five years of renting that you wouldn't have seen, right? So you got a lot of those different dynamics that are that are coming out and taking place. And I think that pushes us to be more of a renter's nation, not to mention debt, student debt, um, other things like that, that certainly are making it harder for people to have the money necessary to go out there and buy a home. With all that said, from a market standpoint, you know what, I, I think the market's still doing well. Um, I am, I don't say bullish or bearish, or whatever, but what I will tell you is, I feel like the fundamentals for multifamily investing specifically, um, I, I think will remain strong for the next few years. Um, the reason for that is we first start talking about demand. I just listed out reasons why I think demand will be strong. Um, you know, it's still difficult to qualify for loans. And this is the thing that's really, really different from the last economic downturn um, back in 2009, 2010. It was hard to qualify for a loan. Like back then, they would give a loan to anybody. You know, if you yeah. can breathe, you got a loan. Um, <laughs> yeah. They're not they're not giving those kind of loans. They have not been doing that for the last five, six years. So they have been really stringent on their approach. If you qualify, they're making it easier to give you money. But if you don't qualify, it's hard to get a loan. It's hard to get approval, yeah. especially after COVID. So I'm not seeing where that's loosened up to the point where it's going to be dangerous from a lender standpoint. 
Um, you know, so I don't think you're going to have as many defaults as, you know, some people might be expecting. And then I think too, like, um, the demand for multifamily from an, from an investment standpoint, you're now talking about global demand. You're not just, you mentioned it right in San Diego, you go to Texas, Florida, you're competing with people all over the country, if not all over the world. Um, you know, we're seeing that as well because people want to invest in us real estate. It's a hard asset. It's tangible. If you live in Australia, or, um, you know, um, you know, France, um, Canada, some of these other countries, they like US real estate, because it's more secure. Um, and, it, you know, the, the legislation isn't as uh, uh, challenging as maybe some of these home countries. So people like that, people are really happy to invest their money in this US real estate, and they're happy to take lower returns for that opportunity. Um, not to mention, because now you do have, you know, the, the, um, the ability for people to get together and do these syndications and group investing where you have more and more people coming together to buy properties than you could do 10 years ago. You know, 10 years ago without the, the jobs act, it wasn't as easy for people to do syndications because you all had to be accredited. So now that's loosened up a little bit. So demand is there for people looking to buy. That's why you're seeing cap rates compressed. That's why you're seeing so much interest in multifamily. And I'm not seeing anything that's going to slow that down. It is really, a unique asset class with all the tax advantages it has. You get passive income, you get appreciation, um, you, you get so many perks that help you fight inflation. Um, I, I'm not seeing why people would stop wanting to buy multifamily. So I think that uh, you'll, you'll continue to see demand be strong for the foreseeable future. Um, but we still focus on buying on fundamentals and not hope for the future, right? We need yeah. to make sure it cash flows today out of the gate. We want to see good cash flow. We want to make sure we put a nice loan on the project where we have flexibility. And we want to see an easy path to increasing rents or increasing the NOI. Yeah. I mean, I think um, even Grant said today, which we would agree is the demand for somebody to buy an asset with, you know, the tax benefits, the cash flow, the appreciation, all this, it's very high. And it's, I think, because of the internet and social media and YouTube, people around the world have then they've been able to read books and this and go, holy smokes, really start to realize why the wealthy invest in real estate. Because a lot of wealthy invest in real estate, they don't even care what they invest in. They just, their CPA says, you have a tax problem. Here's what you got, cool. Here's capital to money manager, go deploy it, take care of it. I'm busy building a business or doing something else. And I think like he said, the demand it's out there and people want this, you know, and when you take a guy like Grant, people go, he just bought like the biggest property ever. And, um, you know, he was saying like, I competed with Blackstone on it and I won because I can put $2 million hard in day two, but Blackstone, because it's somebody, the other people's money, they have to do a due diligence process. It takes three weeks. They can't put $2 million hard right now. They got to wait the three weeks. And his, when we talked to him, you know, his end buyer, he knows who it is. My, his end buyer, what he's buying is Blackstone. They always have money. There's always this demand. They're always knocking on his door to buy. And like you said, that's just one buyer. And I think there's so much demand. And I think um, with inflation and things, I think it's a, a, a great asset and place to be in. And like you said, is you can touch it. You can feel it. You can go visit it. Um, you can see your tenants and, um, you know, we interviewed somebody, uh, I can't remember months past. And he really said something to me that I never heard somebody say it. He goes, you know, when I'm buying a 
apartment building, I tell people that are investing with me, I'm like, we're buying a 50-year-old business. We're buying a 30-year-old business. This has been around. It's, it hasn't gone bankrupt. It hasn't gone under. It's performed year after year, month after month, day after day, and we're just taking on a business and we're going to buy it and we're going to make it better. And when I heard that, I was like, that's a really good way to look at it because this business has been around. He goes, think about it. If you buy a building that's 50 years old, it's been in existence for 50 years. How many businesses that do we know around us that may have been around for 50 years? Think about it. A lot of these small businesses are in and out, mom, pa. So I thought that was a really cool way to look at things. And when you're talking, the way to look at it, when you're talking to clients and stuff, you're trying to raise money, it's a good perspective because it makes sense. I love it, but I got to tell you, that definitely feels like some marketing. If you're buying a 50-year-old business, uh, instead of saying, hey, it's not a 50-year-old property, it's a 50-year-old business. Uh, so, certainly sounds a lot better as a business than a property, but but no, but you're, you're spot on though. I mean, it, it, it is a business. And yeah. ultimately, if you understand it from that standpoint, it makes it a lot easier to understand why people love real estate and all the perks that are involved in it, so. Well, John, um, thanks for coming on and, uh, congrats on all your success. It's, um, you got a lot of cool stuff going on and I know it's a lot of work and, um, I, I have nothing but respect for you because it's not easy to do 350 episodes. You know, we, I have a guy that helps people start podcasts and I think he told us 90% of people quit after the first four or 10 episodes. Like you said, is it doesn't work. I'm over it. It's, you know, and so I think, you can understand and appreciate that when you do something and you're consistent, you see results, right? And um, I like, you know, where's the best way people can find you, learn more about you? Um, where would you like us to send people to? Yeah, the best thing is go to kasmancapital.com slash sample deal. We put together a sample deal package on our website. It's uh, for a, a deal that is not real. It's a fictional deal, but it'll give you a sense of, the deal package, what to look for. We talk about the market. We talk about what we like about the deal, return expectations. And whether you want to be active or passive, I think it's a great thing to look at. So you get a better sense of what to be looking for if you are interested in these kind of opportunities. And as a follow-up, what will happen is you'll get an email that lists seven questions that you want to ask anytime you're looking at a deal. So check that out. You can download it at kasmancapital.com slash sample deal. That's awesome. So the final question we always ask everybody is, what is your definition of generational wealth? Oh, man, generational wealth. That is a great question. I, I think I, um, I would consider generational wealth creating the financial opportunities for the next generation and the generation after that to do what they love, uh, but also to be healthy contributors to society. Uh, not just having the money themselves, but actually finding ways to make the world a better place and contributing to the their circle, their community, and the causes that they care about. Yeah, I love that answer. Um, John, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate the time. Um, super fun conversation. I'm kind of glad we got to jump in a little bit of marketing too because not everybody has that background. So uh, it seems like you got a really cool story and I can tell that's you know helping your brand and helping you win deals and stuff like that. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on today. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.